good morning. How uh, exciting is it to know that next week we will be sitting here worshiping the Lord, not cut in half, but with the entire body gathered together. I just cannot wait for that. Um, we know that we won't be gathered entirely together. There will still be brothers and sisters that we love that are not able to be with us, and we long for the day when that will end as well. And I hope that you're praying for those of our number who are not able to gather with us. Uh, please join me in turning back again this week to Galatians chapter 1. If you haven't already, uh, we pick up at verse 11. Lord willing, we will finish the chapter this morning. Uh, we, we ended last week by hearing Paul's statement in verse 10, the second half of verse 10. You remember he said there, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And his, uh, what he was emphasizing there was that this dramatic shift that, had, uh, that had, had taken place in his life from advocating Judaism to advocating for the gospel message of Christ, his emphasis was that that shift cannot be said to have been done in order to garner favor with man. This morning, Paul is going to expand on that claim and defend it. And he's going to do that by walking through the details of the events surrounding his conversion. He's going to tell his story. And it's going to be amazing to see how powerfully the, just the events of his life before and after his conversion to the gospel of Christ, uh, how powerful of an argument it is to see those, those, uh, those events. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to follow him there. We're going to let him tell his story. Uh, we'll walk with him through these recollections of his past. And I do hope that we'll come away. It's always helpful when we come to a place in Scripture that walks us through some, some history, some biblical history. Uh, it helps us to develop our own sense of the timeline of things. And I hope that that happens for us this morning, especially regarding Paul's life. But what's most important for us this morning is what Paul is trying to emphasize. And that's that, that we see how his life was manifestly a life of service to Christ and was not lived as a means of self-aggrandizement uh, or man-pleasing. Let's begin by reading the text. If you're able, please stand with me as we read Galatians 1. I'll read verses 11 to 24 out of the English Standard Version. Paul writes this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted many of... Uh, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, 
But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll walk through this passage this morning under four headings. The first thing we'll see in verses 11 and 12 is we'll see Paul lay out his thesis statement, you could say. This is the claim, verses 11 and 12, that he will then proceed, uh, proceed to, to defend. Uh, secondly, we'll see in verses 13 and 14, we'll, we'll see him describe his pre-conversion life. Pre-conversion, verses 13 and 14. He'll then recount his conversion in verses 15 and 16. That's 15 to 16a will be his conversion. And then fourthly, in 16b to verse 24, we'll hear him describe his life post-conversion. So it's very easy to see what he's doing here in walking through this text. Let's start with verse 11, verses 11 and 12, his thesis statement. Here's what he's making clear in recounting these events. The gospel I passed on, he says, is not man's gospel. Let me reread this statement. Notice he's making a claim in verses 11 and 12 uh, that not only will he spend the rest of this chapter defending, almost all of chapter 2 is going to be spent continuing to defend this claim in verses 11 and 12. Here's the claim. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel literally, is not according to man. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the claim that he's staking. It's quite a claim. It's not a claim that, that, that we can claim. That what, what we have learned of Jesus Christ was taught to us by some human teacher. Paul is saying, that experience is not the one that I experienced. It's not man's gospel, he says. Literally, not according to man. Uh, the Holman Christian Bible uh, translates this, um, not a gospel based on human thought, or not a gospel after man. The King James renders it that way. This is a return. If you were here for the, our first, uh, first message in Galatians, he's sort of returning to the door he cracked open back in verse 1. He said there, uh, he was talking about his apostleship, and he said there that his apostleship was not from men nor through man. And this is what he's saying now about his message. So Paul's commissioning to bring the gospel message was not a commissioning that was given to him by man or through man. And the message that he was commissioned to give was not given to him by man. And he's expanding on this in verse 12, you see. He, he did not receive it from a man. That is to say, no particular human teacher taught it to him. That's what he's meaning in verse 12 when he says, 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. You, we should not think of that as Paul drawing a distinction between uh, being taught and receiving. Uh, he, he's not trying to draw a hard distinction there. If we, if we thought that he was, here could be a danger for us. We might think he's saying that he was not taught this information. No, somehow the truth of the gospel was immediately and mystically known by Paul. That's, maybe that's what he means by receiving it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is not what we're supposed to be taking from this. Paul's point here is more simple than that. His point is that the teaching didn't come from another mere man. It came from God himself. And the content of that teaching, in fact, was Christ himself. That's what he's saying principally in verse 12 at the end when he says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. When you have these of statements, there's always some difficulty. A revelation of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus gave him the revelation? So it's a revelation of Jesus, from Jesus? Or does it mean that the revelation was about Jesus? A revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see the difficulty there? Um, and it's often possible that both can be at, at play at the same time. I think there is at least a, a real sense here, of course, that the first is true. Jesus is the one who gave the revelation to Paul. Again, you can just imagine the road to Damascus. He's walking to arrest Christians, and Jesus Christ appears to him and blinds him and tells him who he is. So in a very real sense, Jesus is the one giving the revelation. But this phrase, of Jesus Christ, should be understood, I think rightly, to be saying that Jesus is what was revealed to Paul. Jesus was the content of the revelation. I say that because that's the way Paul typically uses this, and because this matches how he's going to speak. If you look down at verse 16, he does the same thing down there. What happened in Paul's conversion, we'll see it shortly, is that the Father revealed the Son to him. That's what happened. So this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation to Paul of the truth about who Jesus is. The truth about Jesus as the Messiah. When Paul was Saul and was walking to Damascus, he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And by the time he got there, he knew he had been wrong. It's a revelation of truth about Jesus as the fulfillment and recipient of the Old Testament promises and types and shadows. This is the revelation that he received. And his point is, who brought that revelation to him. He did not sit under a human teacher. God brought that revelation to him. Now we could, we could try to explain this by jumping right to that encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, uh, or by thinking about how it affected him and so how he uh, spent his time right after that experience. But instead, we're going to let Paul tell this story and direct the story. And the way that he decides to do that is to start actually pre-conversion. So when we come to verse 13, in verses 13 and 14, he takes us back to his life before he received this revelation of Jesus Christ. Look now at verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, 
how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And we'll stop there. It's interesting to hear how he talks about his life before he was converted to the gospel of Christ. You see in verse 13, he calls it his former life. And he says that this was a former life lived in Judaism. You've heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, of course, Paul is still a Jewish man as he's writing this, right? There's not much he can do about that. Um, there is a difference between being of Jewish descent and being in Judaism. And so to this end, one commentator, Tom Schreiner, writes this, that Paul remained ethnically Jewish, but he no longer considered himself to be part of Judaism. In this respect, Paul differed from his opponents who believed that faith in Christ was compatible with adherence to the Mosaic law. Paul understands himself far differently from that. When he received the revelation of Jesus Christ and followed after him, he was walking his way out of Judaism. And he emphasizes two things in particular here about his, this pre-conversion life. Notice in verse 13, what he emphasizes is his passionate action. How passionate was he for Judaism? Well, here's how passionate he was. He persecuted the church. This is what he picks to portray the extent of his passion. It's exactly what he will do later when he writes to the Philippians, and he's talking there about his pre-conversion life. You can tell this is a marker and was seen by the Jews to be a marker of, of one's passion. In Philippians 3, he's giving a list, again defending himself. He's describing just how much reason he had to boast in the flesh beyond the, even his current uh, Jewish opponents. And so he does things like this. He says, as to the law, here's how, how, how carefully I follow the law. As to the law, a Pharisee. And then he says this, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You see, he's doing the same thing here. This is the marker of his passion. And what he's emphasizing in particular in the way he writes this is the manner that he persecuted the church, the way he persecuted it. The ESV translates it with the word violently. I, uh, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Other English translations do it differently because this is an expression, a two-word expression he's using here. And it uses a word that we just directly take out of the Greek and we make our word hyperbole here. He persecuted the church to a hyperbolic degree, you could say. The New American Standard and King James both say he persecuted the church beyond measure. He persecuted the church, the Holman Christian Bible says, to an extreme degree. You see how different versions are trying to get this across the extent to which he persecuted the church. And what that persecution entailed from Paul was something of an outright destruction of the church. He puts it that way. He literally says, I persecuted the church to an extreme degree and destroyed it. Now, we know he didn't actually destroy the church. 
And we insert the words, rightly, to help us get the sense of it, we insert the words tried to, but those were not there. Uh, we, we, we do that to clarify he didn't actually succeed. But if, if you were there, if you were a Christian living there, it would have felt like his statement here was not, um, was not overkill to say, I persecuted the church and destroyed it. We get details of that, of what he's talking about in Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. But the first verse of Acts 8 paints the scene for us. Stephen has just been martyred. We've had the first Christian martyr stoned to death outside the city. And it says immediately after that, that murder of Stephen, a great persecution begins in Jerusalem. It's so bad that the entire Christian community has to flee the city to surrounding regions. It says there, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And two verses down in verse 3 of that chapter, it makes clear that this is being spearheaded by Paul. Of course, he goes by Saul then. And it says in verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you hear what he's emphasizing in verse 13 as he speaks of his former manner of life in Judaism. He's emphasizing his passionate action. Verse 14, he continues, but he emphasizes something else. Now he's going to describe his zeal for the traditions of his fathers, his zeal for Jewish tradition. He says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul's zeal for the traditions of his fathers had led him to advance beyond his own peers in terms of, a, of being a practitioner of his faith. He was a student of Gamaliel. Acts 5.34 tells us Gamaliel was a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people. And Paul sat under him directly as his student. Paul had recognition. He had piety. Uh, and his recognition had led him to be entrusted to positions of authority beyond what his age would normally have allowed. I mean, he's, being, he's spearheading some of these purifying movements within Judaism. Now look, you take 13 and 14 and put them together... And what you have is a situation that is very pleasing to all the people around Paul. Which means something in, in terms of this current uh, attack against Paul. It means that if Paul is someone who is led by a desire to please man, so that he's tailoring the message that he took off of the apostles, this is the accusation, he's taken it from the apostles and he's twisting it in order to please the people around him. If this is the accusation, but this is his past, do you see the problem there? He would have had no reason to have walked away from Judaism if his desire was to please the people around him. Paul had it made in terms of finding the approval of man. It doesn't get more perfect than the situation he was already in that he walked away from. And so you can see the value in the arguments he's giving here as he talks about his pre-conversion life, how effective this is in dismissing the accusations that are being brought against him. 
He turns then in verse 15 to, to the story of his actual conversion. Verse 15 to the first part of verse 16. Let me reread that for us here. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now let's just pause there for now. Paul is just so extremely clear in his own mind, in terms of his own understanding of what actually happened to him, to bring him into right standing before God. It's really helpful the way that he chooses to describe this. And I think especially it's helpful to see verses 15 and 16 here in light of what he just said about his life before he was saved. What did it take for Paul to be saved? Or we could even ask in terms of, of what we're dealing with in our text this morning, what did it take for Paul to find approval? His passionate works could not bring him into God's favor. His zeal for the traditions of his ancestors couldn't do it. So what was the answer? And the answer comes here in verses 15 and 16. Let's look very closely here. Something about the way that this, um, that this is arranged in our, in our Bible can make it a little bit difficult to tell his main point. So let me read it again. Let me ask you to listen for something. What's the action? He's going to name several things you could think of as actions here. What's the action, according to Paul, that God actually did on the day Paul was converted? Okay, so let me read it. What is he saying God did on that day? But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What happened on that day? Can you see that the main action that he's drawing us to here is that what happened is that God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. That's what happened. There are two other statements in there that are important. They serve to, they're actually participles. They're describing God. This, this God who was pleased is the God who set him apart before he was born. He's the God who called him by his grace. But what he did there was he was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. What it took for Paul to be saved at all, but here specifically what it took for Paul to be commissioned into service as an apostle was one thing. Jesus had to be revealed to him. And notice that it's the sovereign activity of God that Paul is emphasizing here and that he's talking about it in reference to his apostleship specifically. This can be easy to miss because he does mention uh, being called by his grace. And I don't know about you, when I hear that expression, what I think of really is effectual calling. When we are called to salvation, we are called by the grace of God. And certainly that's true, and it's true for Paul. These statements about God's sovereignty apply to Paul's salvation. But he's talking about Paul's apostleship specifically and directly here. God set him apart before he was born. God graciously called him in order, he says, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So this is about, first and foremost, the Lord's divine sovereignty when it comes to the callings of his people. 
How is it that Paul can claim apostolic authority? It's because God set him apart before he was born and graciously called him to this purpose, to this command to preach him among the Gentiles. And we shouldn't move on from this without taking note of something. Well, when Paul is talking about When Paul's talking about a divine calling to a particular service, he is not talking about something that's foreign to your experience as a Christian. You too have been called if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And your calling, just like Paul's, does not simply refer to your salvation. You have been called into particular service to him. And so we wrestle at times with the question, right? Well, what is my calling? And maybe you think, as we're considering this today, that Paul actually had it a bit easier than you do in these respects. Because after all, when it comes to Paul's calling, there was audible instruction about the service he was being called to. He was being called to the service of Acts 9.15. Very specifically, He will bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and he will suffer for my sake. I mean, God spoke that. Christ Jesus spoke it to a prophet to be heard. So maybe Paul had it easier than we do when it comes to discerning our calling. You ever thought that way? It's an easy thought to have. But there's some things, even in the way Paul describes this in our text, that are really helpful reminders to us as as we are thinking about the service that we have been called to ourselves. Here's the reminder that I take from what he's saying here. If, If it's this sovereign God that we're reading about who has called you to his service, then the God who set you apart from before you were born is the same God leading your life. And so he's the same God that leads your life into the callings that he has called you to. So what service have you been called to? Well, let's see. Let's think of some examples. If you're sitting here this morning and you have children, then you know that just like Paul was called to the service of Acts 9.15, you know with absolute certainty that you have been called to the service of Ephesians 6.4. If you're single here this morning, you know that you have been called by God to the service of 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35. If you are an older saint here this morning, if you are more seasoned, let's change that. If you're a more seasoned saint here this morning, listen, I, maybe you didn't expect me to say this this morning. I have a message for you from God. I usually say that. But it's true. I have a message for you, seasoned saint, from God himself. Here's the message. You have been called to the service of Titus 2, 1 to 5. You've been called to pour out the wisdom God has given you over your years of walking with him in a present evil age. No one does that. No one walks with the Lord for years in a present evil age and is not given wisdom and given grace and given experiences to be learned from. God calls you to pour that wisdom into the younger generation. You're commanded to that end in Titus chapter 2. Because after all, you remember 
last week, I hope, if the Lord has saved you, seasoned Christian, and if the Lord has saved the younger individuals in this church and put them together with you in a local church family, do you know what you are to them now? You are a father to them. You're a mother to them. And God has called you to the service of Titus chapter 2. Kiddos. I'm looking for Owen and Brooklyn and Riley and Graham and Asher, Evie. Where are Jaden? There you are. Kiddos, I've got good news for you this morning. God has a divine calling for your life right now. I mean, he's calling you to service of him. Did you know that? I hope you know that by now, that he speaks to you in his word. Two things very particularly does he call you to, kiddos. Number one, Mark 1.15. Ah, Mark 1.15. Ready? Repent and believe in the gospel. He's calling you to do that. That's an act of right, obedient service to him. Number two, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There you go. There is your calling from God. And I hope you can come to enjoy the simple clarity of that calling, guys. Because it will develop beyond that over time. God's calling on you will change as you grow and mature and as he develops you. But principally right now, I would say, that is God's calling to you from Scripture. Repent and believe in the gospel. And obey your parents in the Lord. So up to the second half now of verse 16, we've seen Paul present his thesis argument for this next big piece of the letter. And we've heard him walk through his pre-conversion life and the experience of his conversion, but most directly, the experience of his commissioning as an apostle. The fourth thing that we see, we find beginning in the second half of verse 16, he now starts to talk about his life post-conversion. Let me read all the way down to 24 again. When the Father was pleased to reveal his Son to me, Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So far, the thrust of his argument that he is not bringing a gospel of man in order to please man, right? So far, the thrust of that argument has been to focus on the divine role in wrenching him out of the life that had definitely pleased the people around him into a life of commissioned service. 
Now he's going to actually go through what he did once he became a Christian to disprove the accusations about him. And we've been talking about those accusations a bit. We talked about it the first week uh, when he spoke of his apostleship as being not from men nor through man. He, the, the accusation he's working to disprove is essentially this. Paul had gone in a self-serving intent. He had gone to the apostles, received the gospel from them, twisted it to his own ends, and is peddling it. So he's trying, Paul is attempting to ride the coattails of the apostles to some sort of personal glory. This is clearly the accusation that is being brought against him. And there are really two things in particular that I want us to do uh, this morning with these remaining verses. The first is, I want us to notice about Paul's statements here that they are, they're focused on Jerusalem. Can you tell that? They're focused specifically on the apostles in Jerusalem. And the statements are essentially negative in this regard. This has been called before, this has been called Paul's negative travel log. Let's just glance through these. Uh, the second half of verse 16, I did not consult with anyone. Literally, I did not consult with flesh and blood. Verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem. Verses 18 and 19, I went to Jerusalem. After three years, I went to Jerusalem. But when I went, I only stayed 15 days. And I didn't see any other apostles except for Peter and James. You hear how negatively this is being recounted? Verse 22, I was unknown in person to the churches in Judea. And keep going. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, where he's going to continue to go. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. I opposed Cephas to his face. Do you see how, how essentially negative these statements are regarding Jerusalem and the apostles there? And you can sense power in this argument. How could Paul be guilty of peddling a gospel that he took from the other apostles if this is his timeline post-conversion? So this is the first thing I just would have us notice about these, where they are aimed and how negative they are. Because if you notice that, you can see how effective this argument is against his detractors. The second thing I would have us do is, I mean, since Paul is taking uh, this amount of time to give this much historical detail, it gives us a chance to understand his timeline better. I don't think we should waste that opportunity. One man said of this, Paragraph, he said, theologically, probably the least significant paragraph in Galatians. And that may be true in a certain sense, theologically, uh, but that's not the purpose he's giving it for. So let's, let's notice the timeline and appreciate some of what we're helped with by him giving us these details. Look at verse 17. We read there that upon his conversion to Christ, he went away, so he's in Damascus, right? He was on the road to Damascus when he's blinded. They... He's led into the city, and that's where Ananias meets him, uh, and he's converted. Um, upon his conversion, he goes away from Damascus into Arabia, and then he returns again to Damascus. Now, his main point in saying that is, I mean, if that's true, then guess where he didn't go? He didn't go to Jerusalem, did he? He was in Damascus 
When he left, he went to Arabia, and then when he left there, he went back to Damascus. Now, these things correspond to events in Acts chapter 9. I, I will, we won't look at some of the other uh, portions and references, but if you would, turn back with me to Acts chapter 9 for just a moment. Let me read verses 17 to 22, Acts 9, 17. This picks up right as Ananias arrives there. Verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That would be a pretty incredible set of details. He's healed. He receives the Holy Spirit. He is baptized. He spends, it says there, some days, you see that in 19, he spends some days with the disciples, you know, the ones he was on his way to persecute and haul off to jail. And then he immediately begins, it says, proclaiming Christ in the synagogues. He begins teaching. Now let's think, how could this very new convert suddenly be ready to articulate a defense of the gospel in Christ? I mean, to the, to the extent that he is confounding the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How could he be ready for this? And I think that what Paul gives us in Galatians helps a little bit because you can tell some of the details are not in this Acts account. There's probably more than one component to the answer. How was he ready for this? One man said this. I thought this was helpful. Doubtless, Saul had gone to some trouble. He's thinking of Saul before he was converted. Doubtless, Saul had gone to some trouble to inform himself concerning the erroneous teaching which he took it upon himself to stamp out. The appearances of Jesus proved at once that Jesus was alive. And since God had vindicated him, that the new faith which was focused on him was true. The rest, by the rest he means the rest of Paul's growing understanding of Christ. The rest followed, not indeed in detail and immediately, mystical, not indeed in detail and immediately, but as the result of theological reflection. And I think he's exactly right. Paul, Saul becomes Paul, and the day before he already knew much about the claims of Christ. He knew about this faith that he had seen to be unfaithful to the scriptures and that he was persecuting. But then he meets the man. He is confronted face to face with the risen Lord. And all of a sudden, his eyes are opened and he begins to return to his scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is illuminating them so that he sees them through the lens of Christ. So that he now can understand 
exactly how these things could be true. In other words, yes, Paul had a lot of thinking and meditating to do. And I I have no doubt that it was already beginning as he was being led blind into Damascus. He is reeling from this. He had just said, who are you, Lord? And the word Jesus Christ was was the answer. And as he's walking into the city, I'm sure already by then, he is meditating. He is reflecting. But he wasn't starting that thinking from a blank slate. He knew the claims of the Christians that he was now joining. Also, you may have noticed in this account in Acts, Luke does not mention Paul's withdrawal for a time into Arabia. That happened uh, for some of this three-year period as well. And it seems like even when he was in Arabia, he was probably preaching the gospel. We think that because 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that early in his Christian life, there's an Arabian king who is angry with him and is pursuing him in Damascus even. He had some reason to persecute Paul. So Paul was probably active in Arabia in some way. But even so, doubtless he is, he is down in Arabia spending a great deal of time studying and reflecting on the scriptures that he has held dear but fundamentally misunderstood all his life. There's some who wonder, I I find this fascinating, it's speculation, because the Bible does not tell us this. But there's some who wonder if he did not go, you know what's in Arabia? Mount Sinai is in Arabia. There are some who wonder if he did not go to Mount Sinai and contemplate the law of God in light of Jesus Christ. He's going to mention Arabia later in the letter to the Galatians here, in conjunction with Mount Sinai. So that's why some wonder that. that, we don't know that but it is an interesting thought. And remember his main point. Who is it who is leading him into this truth, into this understanding of, of God's scriptures as being fulfilled in Christ? It's God himself who is guiding Paul in this. He had no human teacher in this time. Now come back to Galatians 1. We'll go through the rest of these verses very quickly. Verse 20, he gives his oath here, which really, I think, makes it clear um, that this is exactly what his opponents were accusing him of, uh, the thing that he is dismissing through these events, because he says in verse 20, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. His primary point is that from the day of his conversion, three years passed before meeting the Jerusalem apostles, and then he met only two of them, and for 15 days. In verse 21, he recounts going into Syria and Cilicia. We see that happen in Acts 9, verse 30, when he went to Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia. And he continues to emphasize, do you see verse 22? He continues to emphasize his lack of a connection with the churches of Judea during all of this time. All they had known of him had been rumors, God-glorifying rumors. But rumors, verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. It is true what what has been said. These paragraphs are completely taken up with historical recounting of events in Paul's life. And yet as we see the reason he's giving them, uh, they're... They're incredibly valuable to us. And I would have us, as we close this morning, uh, consider 
how our Lord would have us come away with the principles that he intends for us here. I would draw our minds to the reason that Paul is going to this much trouble. He's doing all of this because his integrity is on the line. Can you see that? And he knows that his integrity affects the credibility of the gospel message. That on its own is a very important reminder for us this morning. Well, we cannot avoid it. The legitimacy of our ministry, the legitimacy of our living out those callings that we were describing in a faithful way that represents Christ, the legitimacy of those things is tied to our integrity. We can't help it. Paul knows that if his integrity is not maintained, people will not listen to his message or follow his example. Why else would 1 Timothy 3 verse 7 speak of one's good reputation with outsiders as a qualification for eldership? Why should that matter? It matters because integrity on display matters. So we receive this word from the Lord this morning out of verses 11 to 24, and we let it create the occasion for us this morning to consider once again how stands my integrity before a watching world? What discipline can I undergo? What wrongs can I right that will put integrity on display for the sake of the credibility of my gospel witness? Next week we will continue to hear Paul telling his story. He's not finished yet. But for now, we respond to God's word this morning by thanking him for putting himself on display in our text and for putting himself on display in Paul's life by graciously calling Paul to a life of service. And we can be reminded that the same is true of each and every one of us here this morning. God has called you by his grace and not simply to salvation, but to humble and faithful service in the particular callings that he has given to you. May you be strengthened by these, by these things this morning to pursue your God-given callings with passion and zeal and integrity. Let's pray together. Father, as you have led us into your word this morning, you have led us into truth. Your word is truth. And we, your people, we came this morning expectantly, excited and expectant to receive from you. But we have sensed our need for the Spirit, for his illuminating work. And we continue to ask, even now, that by your Spirit, that you would hide your truth in us this morning. Renew us, O God. Purge ungodliness and unbelief from us, your children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our benediction this morning? Let's be dismissed and go from here with it present in our minds, the blessing of our Father who has washed us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
Go in his peace.